when we talk about particularly financial difficulties, debt, and so forth, that the picture isn't always as straight, clear cut as it may seem, right? It isn't just always because X, Y, and Z spent way too much on, you know, creating this comfortable material life that is going to impress their family and their peers. There's also other factors that come into play, right, that contribute to our debt. And also would like for your listening audiences to think about when they are, if they unfortunately are dealing with financial struggles, are in debt, to think about how, yes, it's a challenge, but it should not be internalized. Like It defines them in a moral sort of way. Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out-of-money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. Today, it's my distinct honor to welcome Professor Lewis Prysock to the show. Lewis and I met not too long ago, but he is a man of great energy, passion, and humor. And we've been having so much fun having conversations because he's busy researching for a new book on his. And y'all guess what this topic is? The financial difficulties of the upper class. And, Mm. you know, we've had some really robust conversations. And I said, you know, Lewis, would you be kind enough to share some of your time and energy on the podcast? And he Mm -hmm. was gracious enough to say yes. So, I have his time today to share with us, you, the listeners, about why he's researching this, what he's learning, and what that might mean for you. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure, and uh, I'm really excited to talk about my research, what I have learned over the years, the experiences and such around this topic, which I think is becoming more and more uh, relevant now as we see various things happening in our society, you know, economic changes, social changes. And it's really interesting because, you know, let me just start off by saying what led me to this topic is, and I think I mentioned this to you when we first met, you know, there's been a lot of coverage in the media and academia with other scholars who look at what they call like the diminishing of the middle American middle class or the constriction of it. And what I found, while these are really interesting uh, studies and stories, this category of middle class is so wide, you know, it's so kind of like nebulous that you can have someone who is, you know, a lower level white collar worker and they'll throw in someone like an engineer or lawyer, right? And I was thinking, huh, you know, it'd really be interesting to kind of separate some, you know, these people because one, I haven't really seen that, you know, done. And two, I really do think there are particular implications 
when we separate, you know, what I said, the, the well-educated white collar professionals. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when I think about it, why this study is also really important is because of the assumptions we have in our society around people who are on the upper end of the social economic scale. Right, right. right. Um, and, you know, people hear about, oh, the upper class or the upper middle class financial difficulties. It's almost like it's a puzzling thing. So how can someone have so much money and resources and be in trouble? Right. right? And then and then it's like this shorthanded kind of, oh, they, they're in trouble because they spend too much. You know, they care too much about what people think, yada, yada, yada. And I was like, you know what? I'm not taking away personal responsibility. You know, that's one thing I want to make clear yeah. in this study in my book. There are just other elements I think we also need to take into consideration that could give us a more nuanced and clear, complex kind of analysis to why people who are in this upper echelon aren't doing as well as we think, you know? And that was really what kind of got me started going down this, this road, you know? That in an article written by a journalist, uh, Rebecca Rosen, for The Atlantic like six years ago, where she was actually bringing up this subject. You know, she's like, what do we call this? Right. You, you know, because she was basing it off of uh, a piece that her colleague uh, had done, Neil Graver. And it was like this first person confessional yeah. where, you know, him and his wife. They the earnings that they had put them in the upper middle class. You know, sure. his wife worked in Hollywood with film and stuff. And he said he was like a writer, author. He had written uh, scripts for television, whatever. They were making good money. You put let's put it that way. Yeah. They hit a bad patch and things were just kind of rough. So he decided that he wanted to write about it, and it garnered so much attention that piece that at the time the Atlantic magazine said that piece garnered more reactions in the comment sections yeah. than any other article that they could remember in a long time. Mm. And of course, as you know, the dichotomy of the reactions was, man, I can totally relate. Right. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah, that's us too. And then there's others that are like, well, that's your problem. Kind of like throwing stones. What's wrong with you that you can't manage this? Well, exactly. Exactly. Bingo. Exactly. So after reading her article, she got me thinking about, huh, this is a topic that I think needs to be explored more. And then I thought about my own personal experience of talking to my yeah. uh, peers, yeah. all of us well-educated, you know, uh, white collar professionals. Sure. And, you know, from time to time, to my friends would talk about, you know, man, it's just kind of ironic that we're living check to check right? because we did everything that society told us to do and here we are you know yes on that surface we're very comfortable but behind the scenes it's pretty tight right so you know i was like huh so i wanted to delve in that uh a little uh, more deeply and also you know when i think about it going back to this journalist rebecca rosen's article like i said she was like well what do we call this this phenomenon, yeah, right? Because yeah. she was saying these aren't really people who are we can consider at risk per se. Not, you know, not in the conventional sense, right? Exactly. So 
just like, what do you, what do we call them? And the gentleman who wrote the piece, uh, Mr. Graver, he had decided what we call this financial impotency. Cause he said it kind of has the same thing where you're embarrassed to talk about it and, oh, okay. and such financial impotency. Yes. Oh. And yeah. the thing about it was, I was like, all right, interesting. But again, uh, Ms. Rosen made a great point, which I just didn't really start to think about. It's that kind of labels too limiting because, you know, when you think about it, it's really more of a male based kind of label. Yeah. yeah you know, sure. when you think, you think about it and, Unfortunately, what the research shows is that women tend to get socked harder when we go through economic downturns, uh-huh. right? Yeah. For a variety of reasons. Right. Um, so I, I, you know, I was thinking to myself, well, what do we call this? And I thought, hey, why not financial mirages? Because you know, this is something that can be universal throughout different class levels because it seems kind of natural, right? that you want to put on a good face for the public, right, but right. behind closed doors, you know, chaos could be breaking out and, oh, and such. So I love this that. is what I came up with, you know, and, and, and the way I defined financial mirages was again, on the surface, things look great. You know, living in a upscale neighborhood, uh, fancy house, you have all the accoutrements, you know, maybe a nice car, nice clothes, the kids are participating in some sports or whatever, but behind closed doors, you know, it's like fingernail biting because they got to figure out how to balance each month's, you know, budget with the expenses and the income and, and such. And again, like I said, this is a phenomenon that's, it's very common, you know, and and not just to people in the affluent classes, but you know, middle-class, even lower middle-class folk, we all do it to a certain degree if we find ourselves there. But the twist I put on it is when you get to folk in the upper middle class and above that there is this almost stronger need, this urgency to oh. keep up this good, you know, yeah. face because, yeah. uh, you know, one of the things that I've noticed just from looking at some of the literature and even just from talking to people about this, there really is, it seems like a stronger judgment when you talk, when you think about people who, yeah. you know, have had, have everything that on the surface, you know, and you think to yourself, well, okay, you got everything. So there should be no reason why you should be in this mess. So, right. That's part of the, part of the mirage, right? Is right. If I have all these external things that society says are markers of my success, I should be happy. Right. That's the right. broad cultural narrative. And then when you talk, actually talk to people about it, they're not actually so happy or fulfilled. And they're mm-hmm. questioning what to do with themselves. How, why is this the way it is? And they're, many of them are underfunded for their retirement needs. And, That's and right. we're talking about replacing a lifestyle at $200,000, $300,000 a year sometimes. And how much you need to have to do that financially is a heck of a lot more than if you're living on $60,000 a year. That's right. And getting that margin, this is the planner in me, right? It is, Mm -hmm. man, you know, and that reality doesn't hit for a lot of folks until they're in their 40s, sometimes in their 50s, that Mm -hmm. 
I've created this life that I cannot sustain and I don't have the runway ahead of me to keep making the money. Egads, what am I going to do? That's true. Exactly. And that you really hit it on the head because that's exactly what is going on. And just staying with that one particular point, right? When you, as you talk about, you may see your clients where they realize, you know what, we don't have, we've underfunded our retirement fund, right? Now, if people hear about that, the common assumption is, well, see, that's the problem. You bought all these fancy cars, you went on these fancy vacations, you did all this, right. you know, uh, uh, fixing up the house, da, 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 da. Again, I'm not saying that that's not possible, but there also could be other reasons why we see this that aren't talked about. Like, you know, again, what the research shows is, and this isn't all, but a number of particularly upper middle class families. Um, a lot of times what they'll do is, yeah, they'll pour into their comfortable material life. But if they have children, that's like a major marker because they are going to want to make sure to put their children in the best position possible where as they get older and, you know, go through their educational experience so that they can, when they get launched in adulthood, at worst, they can maintain their social status that they were born into, right? And at best, they were like, you know, what the American uh, uh, dream narrative tells us, to go beyond their parents. Sure. And one of the things that has uh, been researched, because uh, I was just reading this book by the sociologist, who's, man, I can't remember her name to save my life, but she actually had done this really good study where she looked at various upper middle class families, and she looked at how some of their kids stayed the same and went above their parents and others didn't. Right. And there's all these different factors at play. But one of the things that I've seen in, in different uh, works is for the upper middle class, particularly upper class, you know, to have their children experience downward mobility mm -hmm. is like even a greater shock to them in some respects, because, if you think about it, they can internalize that as, oh, this is really a telltale sign of the quality of parenting that we put forth. Right. You know, right. it's like you can strut like a peacock when your kid is doing well and everything. Yeah. But if they get older, go into oh. adulthood and they are sliding further down than where they started. As a parent, I can see how they want to just kind of curl up like a turtle in their shell and really not want to just talk about it, right? And yeah, part of it is keeping up with the Joneses, but also part of it is, I think, the way that we are socialized to think about how we should parent in regards to how evaluating our parenting, you know, um, and such when it comes to our kids. So, you know, that's part of what may go into uh, how, you know, people from the affluent class may find themselves in trouble because they may decide, hey, look, we've got to divert these resources to get Johnny and Janie on the fast track so they can go out here and they can, you know, not skip a beat. Do you have any numbers? And because and, my numbers are going to be skewed and off my memory. So I'm curious what, what you know mm -hmm. is how many people in the affluent class and whether we define that by education or income or some combination of the two, um, 
Mm-hmm. How, how, what percentage of those folks are there as a first generation member? Like, meaning they've come from, you know, working class, poor, or, mm-hmm. or kind of more moderate level blue collar levels or, or mm-hmm. lower level white collar work. And they're really in this more affluent class. What percentage mm-hmm. of first generation are really navigating? Oh, that's a great question. And, you know, again, this is how I should have written all this stuff down because I did see yeah. research on that. And uh, off the top of my head, from what I can remember, it's around, I would say, anywhere from 17 to 25%, you know, okay. in that population. Yeah. Um, because if you think about it, and this is a whole nother discussion, uh, social mobility is, is not as easy as we think it is in our society, right? I mean, yes, you hear the stories about right. people who were able to rise themselves up yeah. uh, from their meager means and such, but what the uh, research shows, particularly within sociology, is most of the time, Americans, where they start out, they may move up a rung, but they may just stay where they are. You know what I'm saying? So to go from working class all the way up to like uh, uber wealthy, that's quite rare according to the the data that's out there. It's not as frequent as we may think given, you know, how it's presented to us in society, particularly through popular culture and stuff. Well, um, so that's, but that's a great question. That, I love that you're saying this, and this is partly why I wanted to interview you, right, is from the lens of sociology which is trying to get to as clear of data as possible. You have nothing to win or lose per se on getting clear on the, the, the reality of what's happening for people in economic mobility, right? I, I spent a lot mm-hmm. of time in the entrepreneurial community and it is chock full of people that are trying to make their way up the economic ladder, right? There's, it draws people in because of the promise of being able to make above average income and money in business success, right? So that's a whole field, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but you know, there's just so like the reality when we look at the broader society is economic mobility is very challenging. And Mm -hmm. I I talked to a lot of burned out entrepreneurs who have chose that path to try to improve their lot, but are struggling in a lot of different ways. Uh, I see this with Mm -hmm. sales professionals, especially, because people learn like, oh, sales is where you can make the most money. I'm going to go into sales. And maybe they might have a few banner years, but then they really struggle. So that's on my mind. And then I can remember, I think it was a Harvard study. And it, it studied like 50 of the largest U.S. cities on economic mobility. Mm-hmm. And I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm sad to say that Charlotte was 50 out of 50 in economic mobility. Really? And... Don't I may be misquoting? It might be like forty nine, forty eight, but we were at the very bottom of economic mobility in this Harvard study of economic mobility, and I thought it was a great irony because Charlotte is a hub of finance. Yes, and so yes, right? Like, there's just there's this word financial mirage that you you're using to describe like it fits on so many levels, and you know I look at this through the lens of psychology and how our mind can get warped and bent. I often will tease my clients and say, our minds are kind of like uh, a bad carnival fun house of mirrors. Like we think that we got like 
a true flat mirror where we're seeing things as they are but it's like you got the concave and the convex and the curvy and it's like man, none of us are seeing stuff straight we just you know like but we we believe what we're seeing is straight and so like that's kind of this ongoing challenge from a psychology perspective is trying to get our mirrors true as as best as possible to say like what's really going on here and uh you know i think people feel a lot of shame when they can't meet those aspirational goals or when they meet the aspirational goals and then they're not enjoying their life right and that's where i meet them on yes, the financial yeah. therapy side of things so anyhow that that was a lot but no that's um, that's a great point ed Welcome to 2024, and thank you for listening to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. I'd like to take you behind the scenes of therapy-informed financial planning, where we talk about emotions, we talk about retirement plans, we talk about painful family experiences with money, and so much more. There's no need to hide things that leave you feeling embarrassed or ashamed about your financial situation. This year, we watch couples and individuals work through financial anxiety and start talking lovingly about money. We saw couples and individuals take action towards their goals, like closing a business that no longer fit them, paying off debt that felt crushing, increasing their comfort with their realized wealth, and ultimately overcoming some of those financial secrets that have been plaguing the relationship. Ultimately, the best part was seeing smiles return to our clients' faces about life, relationships, and money. This is why we do Therapy Informed Financial Planning. I invite you to make 2024 the year you start Therapy Informed Financial Planning. Check the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute consultation. And I think a lot of it, the shame, particularly when you come up short of the failure, a lot of it really can be based back into just the way our, our society, our culture has been embedded with these Calvinistic puritan kind of values around money debt uh you know uh even though it's not as overt as far as religious uh analysis of it you still kind of feel it in a sense like you still kind of hear a bit about debt is sin but you know or at least people respond that way you see what i'm saying oh oh uh-oh. I didn't know we were going to open this door, but man, oh, we're, we opened the door, so here we go. <laughs> yeah, all right. I, I mean, I don't know if you know this, but I went to a seminary to get my graduate degree in counseling because what I tell people in simple terms is I have questions about people and God. Mm. And man, when, you get, when you're forced to be a graduate student of theology, mm-hmm. well, that will blow up your brain on like how you understand God and money and the teachings. And, you know, right, like, with all due respect to all religious adherents that are listening to this, there's some really wonky stuff that goes on with God and money and people. Like, mm-hmm. that trifecta and the religious teachings and how they shape our relationship with money. And so, I am throwing stones and I'm trying to do it as respectfully as possible. But getting reflective on your religious heritage, even if you no longer ascribe to it, because it there are teachings that are deeply just below the surface and debt as sin mm-hmm. is one of them borrowers borrower is servant to the lender. Right. And that gets leveraged. And I, I lived for a period of time in the evangelical community where that was a phrase used very often. Another religious phrase that was used very often is it's not your money. It's God's money, which plays on the whole yes. psychology of ownership. Mm-hmm. 
And when we can't That's right. own things for ourselves, our sense of responsibility around it changes. So yeah, I'm, yes. I mean, this is a hot topic for me, but I'm curious to know, like from a sociologist perspective, religion, society, money, what's, what's on your mm-hmm. mind? Well, you know, it's interesting because a lot of this I'm listening to you falls back on, uh, you know, the classic work by a sociologist by name, by the name of Max uh, Weber and the work that, I mean, he's, you know, he was very prolific uh, sociologist back in the 18th, 19th century or whatever. And his classical book is the, you know, the Protestant ethic. That oh, yes. Wrote. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. and he was looking at the formation of, I think it was over in Germany, the intersection between capitalism and religion, right? And the values that were put out there to kind of justify the social structure in, in a way. And what's really interesting about that is, again, you can see how these values just no matter, they just carry over, you, you know, from the beginning of time till now, like you said, the comment you made about sin right. um, and borrowing and how, yeah. you know, are you really acting in God's vision, right. right? Are you being responsible with the blessings and gifts that God has given you? You know, um, right. and, and again, I just say this in a more general sort of way. But I, I know you're t- talking about because what's interesting is you see at, at times, especially within the black church, you'll see this c- theme come up over and over again. Oh, right. Okay. Um, and particularly with these mega churches who put forth this like prosperity gospel. Uh-huh. Where you know, which again, I could do a whole nother show on that. Oh, I we we may be coming back. You may be an, an expert guest back on that one because, <laughs> in, in all sincerity, whether we camp out here for the next twenty minutes or not, religion and money is a huge topic. It's one that people don't get very fired up about. But I, I think if we can slow down and get reflective and thoughtful about it it really can open up some really powerful things. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, so sorry to interrupt, but I'm curious about in the black church, what do you see? What have you heard? What has your research led? I did do a little Google scholar mm-hmm. on you. So I know that you've written academic papers in this area. So I'm curious mm-hmm. to, to hear more. Well, you know, a lot of it, and it, it, it really varies depending on the ideological perspective of the church. Yeah. Because, uh, if you're looking at more black progressive churches, they will focus more on not only how to maximize your money, but also linking it with exploitative practices and how the, you know, the black community needs to be aware of because of the historical uh, nature of, again, race and money and how African-Americans have been discriminated systematically in different, you know, contexts and such. So it's kind of like that, and it's interesting because you'll see while they put that out there, there's a little bit more of an understanding. Whereas if you go more towards the uh, traditionalist conservative black churches where you'll find a lot of, particularly this prosperity gospel uh-huh. pop up, a lot of it is blended with social agency, right? And using your spirituality to enact social agency or individual agency such as uh, social mobility because you'll have the, the the ministers the religious leaders will talk about and one of the things they'll preach on is they'll castigate 
their congregations and the black community in general around how, you know, all these studies show black people have these earnings and we uh, spend so much money of our discretionary money on different things. Whereas we need to be more responsible, you know, we need to show God that we can handle the gifts that he gives us and investment, you know, entrepreneurship uh, is one of the things that is really big. And that will sometimes get tied into not only just in a theological sense, but then you're getting into, you know, theology, finance, and then racial ideology, right? Because there'll be the way that black people can liberate themselves right. is through the development of black capitalism. So, you know, when you're spending your money correctly, putting it back in the community, saving, da, 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 you're not only helping yourself, but you're also helping out the race. Uh, if that makes any sense. That makes right? a lot of sense. And so does that mean that like the, the black preacher will be castigating the, congregation members if they're not being good air quote stewards of god's money and they're oppressing themselves by not raising the total wealth held by black households exactly that's right that's right you know and it's like Mm. directed towards the congregants but it's also a larger social commentary yeah you know on well as black people you know, we got to do what we have to do to help ourselves. It's just the traditional Booker T. Washington, lift yourself up by your bootstraps uh, kind of thing. And what I find really interesting about it, even though, again, like I said, I don't really address that too much in the book, but uh, what I know about it, it's very powerful, you know, particularly for people who are very spiritual, who are very religious. So to hear that, all right, we're in financial trouble, and oh, it's because we didn't, we weren't good stewards, right? With the material, the gift that God has given us, that has that has some play, you know. When in actuality, the problem that I have with it is it really obfuscates other factors that come into play, right? Like again, this whole thing I talk about it in the book, and I think I mentioned it in the form that you had me fill out. The changing, the, 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 you know, the change of the landscape of how work is done here in this country, yeah. you know, particularly at the white collar stages now, yeah. you know, where in blue collar um, occupations, it was always known that, you know, they were somewhat, uh, uh, you know, vulnerable to layoffs sure. when you had this swing in the economy. Right. Whereas being in the white collar professions, those seem to be a little more sturdier, right? Which is why people will, you know, parents were pushing their kids. Look, you got to get the education yeah, right. to do this, that, and that. That's all changed now, right? You know, it's not uncommon to, again, from what I was seeing in the, the research and also from what I know from, per, you know, personal experience with some of my friends, you can have people who are well-educated, white-collar professionals working, I don't know, advertising, heck, even law, whatever, and they go into work one day and they find out, oh, the I'm they're saying bye bye to me. You know, I'm getting the, uh, you know, metaphorical pink slip or literal pink so, slip. Right. And what do you do when you're in your mid to late 40s, 50s or my age, 
57, right? Yeah. And you go into work one day and they say, thank you very much, Lewis, but, <laughs> you know, I'm so glad we had this time together. Right. <laughs> it's like, right. you know what I mean? Because now you're 57, anywhere from 47 to 57, and you're thinking, oh, crap. It almost feels like I have to start all over again, you know? And what are we going to do when, okay, this happens, but you've already built a life, a lifestyle. And particularly if you have kids, that comes into play like, oh, how is this going to impact our ability to begin to provide for Janie and Johnny the resources that they need to be competitive with their peers, Yeah, right? Right. You know, and, you know, again, like I say, this isn't all uh, people who are in the affluent class. But again, the research shows, particularly with upper middle. I mean, like if you think about it, there is a way in which parenting is classed. Right. There's big differences from what I've read of sociology of parenting and the way parents understand parenting at different social class levels is profoundly different. Exactly. Exactly. So if we just stick with those who are in upper middle class and affluent classes, Annette LaRue, she's a sociologist, did a really classical study back in 2002, 2003. And she did a comparison looking at middle class, working class and upper middle class, upper class. You know, she had spent time with her families and she saw these great differences. But the key thing she came up with, with particularly with the parents in the affluent class, is what she called. Oh my goodness! Why am I going blank? Concerted, concerted cultivation, concerted cultivation. Like they have. Yes, thank you. Exactly. Plan time and activities for the kids all the time. Exactly. And exactly. Versus, uh, I think the language was laissez-faire parenting, which is like unstructured time yes. for the children. Exactly. And then I think in the affluent. Yeah. How I grew up. Yeah, and I think in the affluent class, from if I'm thinking of the same research, that parents also mm-hmm. use on a much higher ratio of positive affirming language and questioning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in, mm-hmm. in the yes. taller and lower classes, it's much more critical, harsh, um, and authoritarian, I, my language. But there's a, no. a different mm-hmm. mindset around what raises a good child. And it's when we look at the structure of society, at least as I feel like I understand it now, like the mm-hmm. white collar population on the whole is has authority over the labor market of the blue collar. And so there's a deference that often is given between these two professional populations, right? The who yes. who's making the decisions about my pay, my time off, my vacation, my healthcare benefits, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. It's not the person on the factory floor. It's not the person. That's right. It's not no. the person in mid management or lower level management. It's the person in way upper management who's making mm-hmm. those decisions on behalf of not the individual but the group or the class of employee. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting because, <clears throat> particularly when you talk about it, what we also find is parents in upper middle class of class. They also try to train their kids to be more assertive in a way to, mm-hmm. you know, when they're in school to question the teacher on a grade or whatever. Whereas in the lower classes, there's this deference to authority, right? Where the parents will be more deferent to, yeah. deferential to the, the teachers because they're like, look, 
you all have the education, you're the experts. Right. Whereas, you know, again, the upper middle class, they want their kids to just be the question, like, why did I get this? Or how can we have to do it this way? Yada, yada, yada. Right. right? But which neatly dovetails in this, what I also wanted to talk about is what you see in these affluent classes more so than definitely in the bottom ones is this phenomenon that we call social arms race, right? And it really takes on the structure of, you know, what the arms race was like, say for instance, between Russia and the United States, when Russia was the Soviet union, you know, and both nations were like maniacal on building up armory because it, it was like, all right, Russia has three more nuclear bombs than we do, so we've got to make sure that we have five. And the dynamic just keeps going and going. And the only way that it stops is through getting both sides together and coming up with treaties, right? Right, right. Well, you see this kind of practice within uh, specific social classes, particularly the upper middle class, um, where... You know, these are people who fit the they're in the positions that you talk about, who make the decisions that impact others. And they want to make sure, like I said, their children are on this fast track. So I'll just use education as a prime example of this. Right. right. You have some of these families who are like, we got to get Johnny and Janie on a fast track the minute they're born almost. Right. Oh, you know, yeah. so you'll hear stories, you'll read stories about how families will do whatever they have to do to get little Janie, who may be two, three, four, five months old, into the, you know, the cream of the cream, uh preschool, nursery, yeah, right? Yeah. And you see a lot of this happening over here in, in New York City, oh, yeah. where families compete with each other because they want their kids in spaces where they're going to be around kids like themselves. Right. So that's one of the things they want their kids to be socialized in this very privileged kind of context where they also know that not only will be good for the kid. And this is more of a psychological thing. So I'm kind of stepping on your toes a bit where the kid will start to develop an identity. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That fits their social standing. Right. But on the other hand, what the parents also recognize is if we get our kids in these special arenas, we can build up what is known as social capital. We can create our, the networks uh-huh. that somehow or another we can use that as currency, not only for ourselves, but for our kids, oh, you know, yeah. if they find the right parents. Because this dynamic is one that is highly competitive. You know, it is, I mean, oh, it's, parents yeah. will pull out all the stops. Going back to your point you had referenced earlier about retirement, it's not uncommon for to see parents in these classes up uh, affluent classes know that you know what yeah we should be putting more money aside for our retirement but we'll cross that bridge when we get to it right now we have to make sure we do everything we can to get our child prepared to in essence do battle right go up against their peers to get these prime spots and you know these prime spots they don't just start at college they start again like, nursery school all the way up. Well, in some sense, there's a, a scarcity or a limited quantity of spots, right? Like, yes. I mean, let's be honest. If you want to send your kid to a junior college, you can send your kid to a junior college. Not going to be hard. Mm-hmm. 
But if you mm. want to send your kid to an elite school, there's X number of spots at each elite school. It's a fixed number. That's right. Right. It, it's almost infinite supply of spots at the community college. I'm not saying, you know, look, community college has its limits of enrollment, but the demand is not. So anyhow, I think like, there's, it's that these social realities are not completely fictitious. Like there are at the top certain places, Mm-mm. only a certain number of top positions. And so it does create that competition and competition, you know, I don't know. I'm, I continually wrestle with competition, collaboration, the, the social value and good of both of them, not pitting them against each other. Right. Because it's very easy mm-hmm. to say, well, oh, so competition's bad. Right. No, it doesn't necessarily have to be. You know, and I guess this is part of the, the great dilemma, capitalism, socialism, that we go on and debate about forever, too. As mm-hmm. um, and so, anyhow... There's so many more open questions I have, Lewis, in this conversation. And we could talk for hours about this. But as as we think about winding down this conversation for today, what's something that you really want people to take away from this conversation? Like, what's what's a main idea that you think would be helpful for people to walk away from this this particular conversation? Well, you know, I would think one of the things I hope people come away with um, is just to see how the complexity of our relationship with our social standing, you know, money, right. identity, yeah. and how there are similarities across class, right. and there are definitely differences across class. But right. one of the things I hope that your listeners will come away with is when we talk about particularly financial difficulties, debt, and so forth, that the picture isn't always as straight, clear-cut as it may seem, right? Mm. It isn't just always because X, Y, and Z spent way too much on you know, creating this comfortable material life that is going to impress their family and their peers. There's also other factors that come into play, right, that contribute to our debt. And also would like for your listening audiences to think about when they are, if they unfortunately are dealing with financial struggles or in debt, to think about how, yes, it's a challenge, but it should not be internalized like it defines them as a person, you know, in the sense of it defines them in a moral sort of way right in the sense of oh i'm a bad person because you know i got a lot of red ink (laughs) not much (laughs) on the you know the black ink on my uh you know the budget thing i mean i think i mean you're highlighting and that's i think a great point to end it on right is from for me what i talk about with all my clients is as a human what's your intrinsic worth you're worth independent of all of the other things that you've done or haven't done in your life all your different identities. And, and this is a personal value and conviction of mine at this point in my life. And others don't have to believe it. And that's okay. But I firmly believe in the intrinsic worth of all humans. Right. And we can always come back to that. Now we value each other in a lot of different ways. And there's, you know, there's a reason why I value, you know, I value you because of your educational background. And I didn't pick somebody mm-hmm. else because they Same don't thing. have that. Right. So there's mm-hmm. multiple valuations that we put on each other. 
And that's, that's mm-hmm. challenging to wrestle with, I think for a lot of us, but like, so anyhow, Liz, I've got to bring this conversation to close. I hate it because there's so many more questions. I hope that you hear this on this podcast. I hope that you'd come back in the future and, and we can continue to have these incredible conversations. Anytime. Oh. Anytime. Hey, I'd be more than happy to come back and do part two, right? Because oh, yes. <laughs> there's so much we can talk about. Yes. yes you know, yes. Uh, everything. But thank you so much for just giving me this platform to just kind of talk about you know, my research and provide some insights and everything. So definitely. I'll definitely be uh, willing to come back. Well, especially once your book is live and published, I'd love to talk about it, get a copy of it, and be able to promote it. So we'll we'll have you back. Most definitely. Right. Thank you. Thank you. I invite you now to stop for five or ten minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money, Ed. Ed.